Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Lowe. And if this is your first episode and you're wondering what this whole thing is all about, well, I'll tell you. Every week, I find my head surgically attached to the body of a different friend and cinephile. Together, we are given a note containing a theme, sometimes specific and sometimes vague. Our job is then to pick a pair of movies that fit that theme and then watch and discuss. This is The Incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Welcome back to the show and our continuing month-long tribute to Vincent Price, a little mini-series I'm calling Master of Mayness, because all May long we're going to be paying tribute to the Master of Menace, Vincent Price, and joining me today, making his second appearance on the show, is Sir Hatchporch. Hey. How's it going? All right. Yeah, I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad I got to come back. Um, I, I know I, I mentioned this before that, but we kind of. We had a little bit of back and forth about about what to discuss this time, and, and it took a bit of uh, of planning to decide what we were going to talk about. Yeah, because we did we did have an initial idea of the episode we wanted to do, and then, uh, well, we can just go right into it and discuss it. Might as well. Yeah. We're going to do a pair of Vincent Price's anthology films, and he's he's done a few. Off the top of my head, I'm thinking of four. There may be another one in there. But uh, we were going to do Monster Club and From a Whisper to a Scream, kind of two later period price films. Not necessarily great films, but I, I thought they'd be fun. And uh, it, it just didn't it didn't feel right after a little while. We were like we wanted something I think we could maybe sink our teeth into a little bit more. Yeah, that's exactly how how I felt. Because um, I'd seen Monster Club before, and I and I loved it, and I felt it was very much like in line with my like aesthetics and everything. And then I watched it again, and I was like, I, I'm not quite feeling it. I loved. Well, I, I liked from Whis- from Whisper to a Scream a lot. Um, some of the segments were better than others. And that's how that's how they go, right? Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, you're, you're, the, the way you said it was. Is accurate it's something didn't didn't quite feel right and i i feel like we have a lot more to say about these two films oh i i think so too but before we get to those i just want to say every year on vincent price's birthday and i've been doing this for a decade or more now i watch some vincent price movies and i make it a point to watch at least one thing that i've never seen before and now it's getting a little bit harder some of the movies that i i haven't seen yet are just not as available or it's getting down to the stuff that he just has like really minor roles in or uh it's his tv work and so sometimes i will watch his tv works or some curiosities but i'll i try to watch something new that i haven't seen with vincent price in it several years ago i chose monster club and i think we had had similar thoughts like i watched it i was like well this movie isn't great this is objectively not a very good movie, but I'm having a lot of fun watching it. I really like, as you said, the aesthetics of it, the uh, style. It was just, it was just fun. Like some of it was really silly, but it, I liked it, and it had John Carradine in it, which is always yeah, funny. yeah. So I was actually really looking forward to watching it again before you decided to that we should. You weren't really feeling it, and I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Like even 
even my choice from a whisper to a scream is a movie that I I like while also realizing it has plenty of limitations. There's just something about it I I, I still really do dig. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was really disappointed to go back to Monster Club because the first time I saw it, it really knocked me out. I was just like, oh, this is this is so in line with everything I love in, in so many ways. And then I went back to it and I was like, uh <laughs> Yeah. Like it just it, it's it's cool, but I don't know. I, I I've never I've rarely had a turnaround on a movie like that that's severe. I have a feeling and that's why I was like kind of I agreed. I was like, yeah, maybe maybe we should change it. Because I kind of have a feeling I'll 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 feel the same way about Monster Club when I go back to it. I'm actually thinking maybe I'll feel the same way about From a Whisper to a Scream, even though I I really remember liking parts. Of, well, yeah, some stories better than the others. Like I really like that Terry Kaiser one, the voodoo one in the swamp. Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, and Clue Gulliger <laughs> is like oh, it, it's I don't know. I that one made me very uncomfortable because I was like am I supposed to be laughing at some of this or, I mean, it, it gets pretty dark, but it's also, um, well, I, I just, I just think it would, it would be made differently today. in today's yeah, planet. That's for sure. <laughs> Clue Gulliger is interesting. Cause I, you know, I grew up, I, I saw, I had seen the return of the living dead, but then I saw him in master ninja on mystery science theater. And so I kind of, for a long time thought he was this like, kind of joke actor and then but like in recent years i've seen him in a lot more and i see him at the new beverly all the time and um i've got i've really gotten a lot of respect for him um and he had did some really out there roles like that's one of them and uh, there's this other movie called uninvited have you heard of this oh is this this is the cat one right yes <laughs> yeah yeah i just watched that uh, uh last year Oh, yeah. Again, not a great film by any stretch of the imagination, but it's no, a lot of fun. <laughs> um, it's, and it's a lot of fun in an audience, too. Yeah, and he, he's a guy, he really made made some bold choices in that segment in From a Whisper to a Scream. Yeah. The last thing I saw him in, that movie Tangerine, mm. uh, shot on iPhones about the transgender prostitutes in west hollywood it was like oh. all filmed on an iphone a couple of years ago the, the same guy who directed the florida project okay he is in that one of the characters that, that the movie follows is a cab driver and he is a passenger that the cab picks up i i really was wondering like watching the movie i'm like i wonder if clue gulliger knows he's in this movie like <laughs> i wonder if they had this guy just driving a cab and then like his his dash mounted uh, iPhone was filming the back seat because he's. <laughs> it was just so weird to see him in this movie with like really nobody, you know, like no name actors. But I mean, he's an actor who lives here in Hollywood. He's probably just like there's those actors that just like to work, you know. Or yeah. To, I can't imagine. I don't think it was a union gig, but you know, that you just want to stay in the business, I guess. That's so funny when that happens, when you see some veteran actor turn up in a, in a film like that, like, wow, how did that happen? Yeah. And it's just <laughs> such a brief scene. It's like, it's like 15 seconds or so. Maybe, maybe it's like a minute or two, but it, it it's so brief and he's just a passenger in the cab. <laughs> but I, I was hey. watching, I was like, is that, is that Clue Guller? Cause he's, you know, it's been years that, since I've really seen him. 
Yeah, and and he showed up in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for about ten seconds. Oh yeah, which made more sense to me because he you know hangs out at the New Beverly all the time and he knows Quentin Tarantino, so that was kind of cool. I, I think he just wanted to throw him in there, you know, as you give him a little bit part. But yeah, he he has had a really interesting long career, um, and and you just never know what he's gonna throw at you. It's it's kind of cool. I saw him do a Q and A. Uh, for Return of the Living Dead uh, about a year and a half ago at the Egyptian. And and uh, I I didn't realize he was so old. He's still oh. funny. He's still sharp. And I looked it up. I was like, oh, my God, he's in his 90s? you got to be kidding me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, that that would have been great. I would have loved to have seen, seen that. Uh, yeah. I Return of the Living Dead is, is probably my favorite non-Romero zombie movie. That's the one. That's what I always say. It, yeah, the scariest, the funniest, and it has the best soundtrack. I completely agree. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and it was a b- big, like, pivotal film for me too in my youth. Yeah, like Dawn of the Dead, and then probably Night of the Living Dead, and then Return of the Living Dead. Although I might even put Return above Night. I do. Yeah, I I, I go Dawn and Return, and then yeah. I mean I don't really rank things very well much because I. I can always talk myself out of I can always talk myself out of anything and my my opinions change so much but I Return of the Living Dead is a movie I I return to a lot more than I do Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, me too. Yeah, it's something I could watch anytime and uh another movie where like all the aesthetics line up for me and really vibe with me. That's a movie that even though it's supposed to be funny, it's it's kind of a parody. I find it so disturbing. Like it, it, mm-hmm. the zombies really scare me. The sequel, I do not like. Uh, I, I actually have only, yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. I just remember I loved it as a kid and I tried to watch it about a decade or so ago. And being, I remember being really disappointed that it's basically a watered down version of everything I loved in the first movie. Oh, God. Uh. So what the sequel does that I really like is James Karen and um, the other kid that's turning into a zombie slowly throughout the course of the movie. Oh, a, a Tom Matthews. Yeah. Okay. They are in the sequel playing different characters and the same thing happens to them that through the course of the movie, they become zombies. <laughs> and I, I think that was just kind of a meta joke, but <laughs> it really actually depressed me watching the movie. I thought this is actually <laughs> the most frightening part of the movie is these characters <laughs> coming back as different people and the same horrible thing happens to them. Oh God. <laughs> That's, that is pretty funny <laughs> and terrifying. Yeah. I have not seen either of the sequels. There's two sequels, right? Oh, I know there's, there's like four. Cause there's, there oh, was a return of dead three in the early nineties. And that's actually terrific. I, I love that one a lot. And then in the, I think in the early two thousands, like there, I think they were like commissioned by Sci-Fi or something. There were, oh boy, <laughs> they were there were two sequels shot back to back in like the Czech Republic or something like that. Um, I remember <laughs> reading about them in Fangoria, but I never watched them. One of them's Rave to the Grave or something like that, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I just all I remember is the title. <laughs> but but the first one is so perfect. I, I'm. Well, I guess I'll check out the third one, especially if you're recommending it. But um, the first one is so perfect. I just don't know how those other ones are going to stack up, you know. It, it's Brian Usna who directed Bride of Reanimator and did all oh, the stuff with Stuart Gordon. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So Return of the Living Dead 3, totally worth it. And it's a really cool movie. So Yuzna directed the third one? Yeah. Oh, well, I got to check that out then. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah, it's good. Uh, really check it out. Yeah, I definitely will now. Wow. So we've kind of gone gone far afield, but let, let's go ahead and bring it back uh, to the topic at hand today. And the topic at hand, of course, we're doing Vincent Price. And Vincent Price is probably most famously known for his Roger Corman-directed Edgar Allan Poe films, of uh, which there were eight official ones made, and I believe he starred in seven of them. Wow. And I think... I think most or all of them were written by uh, Richard Matheson or, or Charles Beaumont, I, I, which are both Twilight Zone writers that I that I love. I think they wrote most of them. Uh, yeah, Richard Matheson worked on a lot of them. Uh, I believe Charles Beaumont. Well, Charles Beaumont worked on one of the ones that we're doing today. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Vincent Price was in seven of them. He was not in The Premature Burial, which was uh, starring Ray Milan. Vincent Price, known for these seven Edgar Allan Poe films that he made for Roger Corman in the early to mid 60s, between 60 and 64. And today we're going to be discussing a pair of films that are not quite Edgar Allan Poe. I'm calling this episode Faux Poe. And we'll get into the reasons why for each film. But now we're going to take a break. We're going to come right back afterwards. We're going to be talking about The Haunted Palace from 1963. You are invited to an open house where horror will be your host. The Haunted Palace. You, who find a kind of macabre joyousness in the horrifying, will enjoy yourselves as in ecstasy in The Haunted Palace. Starring Vincent Price, a being who lived and died and lives again. I'll not have my fill of revenge until this village is a graveyard. And intriguing Deborah Paget, whose appealing beauty inflames the blood of the bloodless. Charles, please. I... Well, I've been very busy, but I'm back now. Charles. Charles, no. We have the whole no. night before. His violence, no. torturous passions inflict no. both pain and terror. She's taking her mind, her soul, just like the others. Really, this is outrageous. This night onward, you shall bear my curse. Burn him! Surely after all these years, I'm entitled to a few small amusements? After five Edgar Allan Poe adaptations in three years, four of which starred Vincent Price, Roger Corman wanted to do something a little different. He chose as his next film a story by H.P. Lovecraft, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. American International Pictures, who produced the film, wanted to capitalize on the success of the previous Corman, Poe, Price films and change the title to The Haunted Palace, a move apparently protested by Roger Corman. In the film, 
Price plays a dual role as Joseph Kerwin, an 18th century warlock, and Charles Dexter Ward, his descendant 100 years later. When Ward inherits Kerwin's estate in Arkham, Kerwin begins to exert his control over Ward's psyche from beyond the grave. Now, this is one I didn't see until a few years back when I bought the Scream Factory Vincent Price collection. Mm -hmm. And I, I went in pretty much blind. I didn't realize going in that this was based on a Lovecraft story. I mean, I figured it out pretty quickly once the film mentions Arkham, but I, I was very surprised by that when I play, pieced together that it's like, oh, this is a Lovecraft story. And I went and looked and sure enough, like the everything says, like, it's not actually based on an Edgar Allan Poe story. <laughs> How about you? Had you seen this one before or was this your first time? Oh, no, this this was my first time for this. Um, I, I I know I haven't seen as many Vincent Price films as you. I've seen a good amount, but but not not a ton. Um, and I haven't seen, I don't know if I've seen any of these quote unquote Poe adaptations. <laughs> I know this one is not really. Um, and even with Lovecraft, I, I like his work a lot, but I, I'm still sort of exploring that. Um, so this, this was new to me in a lot of ways. I'm not a Lovecraft zealot. Like I, I know there are people who are really into the mythos and of course, the expanded universe mythos, which like a lot of our uh, authors have kind of taken Lovecraft's ideas and run with them and, and done their own canonical stories within his mythology. Um, I've read quite a bit. I, I've read, well, I mean, relatively speaking, <laughs> I guess <laughs> you've got so much. I've read I've read several like several dozen of his stories and maybe like at, at his bigger titles like At the Mountains of Madness and stuff like that. But I'm not. Uh, I'm not a scholar by any means. In fact, I I kind of had to look up what the differences were between this movie and the book because I, I think I'd read it a long, long time ago, um, but I wasn't quite clear on the details. And I was going to actually read it again, but I just didn't have time to prepare yeah. by reading the whole thing before this episode. And so I just kind of like looked up on Wikipedia what all the plot differences were. Edgar Allan Poe was kind of like an early favorite author of mine. And even him, I'm not like a scholar on. I just read like a lot of his poems and stuff. And Oh, yeah, um, me too. Me too. And his stories when I was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And Vincent Price, I, I, I mean, we're kind of like not getting to the movie yet. But Vincent Price, <laughs> he's just an actor that I, I don't know what it is. I'd seen him growing up in things, but it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I started to really get into watching his movies. And there's something about him that I find so engaging, even even in his not great roles, even when he's playing the camp a little bit too much, even when the movie's not good. I find him so warm and engaging. He is, you know, people always talk about which celebrity they wish they could like sit down and have a dinner with or meet. Vincent Price is by far the number one celebrity I am very sad i never got to meet oh wow he just wow. seems like he was such a warm and genuine person i have a friend who met him when he was in an elementary school he's an older friend he lived in california uh, when he was a kid and his school took a field trip to vincent price's art gallery because he was a, a oh, price yeah. was a, an avid collector and had a gallery here in in california in la yeah yeah and so his, his school took a class field trip and he was like too young to know who Vincent Price was, but he, he remembered him as being just like a really gracious person and like talking to all the kids and showing them around and everything. It was like, it was really cool to hear. 
Wow. We'll we'll go over it when we got talk about these movies, but you hear stories about him on set. And of course he's had his his clashes with people as we'll talk about in the next movie. But he um he was just like people always talk about how great he was. Like he gets he gets along with everybody. I, I've read biographies on him. I read that one from his daughter, which of course is biased, but he just sounds like the nicest person in the world. Yeah, yeah. I've I've read and heard much the same. Kind of like you, uh, like I, I had minimal exposure to him growing up. I mean, my my first exposure was Thriller. No, oh, yeah, that might have been mine, maybe. And yeah. then uh, he used to do a segment on the Disney Channel called Read, Write, and Draw. Do you remember this? Uh, I never had I never had cable growing up. Oh, so he would you know he would just uh, like share drawings that these kids would send in and and stuff like that and and he and he was you know later in life and and very late in his career so he was just came off as this like kindly old man and um it was really interesting and then later on i started coming to his films uh the house on haunted hill and all this corman stuff and especially abominable dr fibes i think that was the first one i saw that i just absolutely loved which is funny because he does all his dialogue looped in that movie i mean it doesn't actually speak on camera no, but he is performing. We talked about that. That yeah. was the first episode in our in our run here. And yeah, yeah. Fives is probably my favorite. Oh, mine too. My mine too. Although, well, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I love Dr. Fives. One other yeah. thing I wanted to mention real quick is another reason that I was really uh, eager to watch this one is because it was, as I said before, it was written by Charles Beaumont, uh, who I mainly know from his work on The Twilight Zone. And I, he's he's actually my favorite, my second favorite Twilight Zone writer after Rod Serling. Um, so oh, when wow. I see when I see his name on a screenplay, I'm like, I got to check that out. And he had a fascinating and and tragic end to his life, too. Um, but we'll we'll get to that later. So I guess we'll we'll get into the movie itself. The film follows Charles Dexter Ward. He's inherited of like a grand palace that overlooks the town of Arkham. And he and his uh, bride move in. They find a the, the, the town of Arkham is inhabited solely by uh, mid-century character actors <laughs> like Elijah <laughs> Cook Jr. And uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is in there. He's not a townsperson. He's just in there. Yeah. Leo Gordon as Whedon, Ezra, and Edgar. Like all of the townspeople, very strong genetics in this town that they look exactly like their great-grandparents or great-great grandparents from 100 years ago yeah uh, that's weird how that happened isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it it's kind of like in um in back to the future three when he goes back in time and it's like okay well his dad looks exactly like him but wait his <laughs> mom looks exactly like his mom <laughs> yeah pretty much or not his mom i'm sorry his, his great grand like great great grandparents but there's like there's a lot of really great actors in this movie that are playing little bit parts in the town uh, who is it that played Dr. Willett? Oh, gosh. Um, is that oh, the Frank guy? Maxwell. Yeah, there's a guy I really uh, recognized, and I, I think I actually know him from the Twilight Zone. <laughs> oh, uh, not him. It wasn't him. It was another no. actor. But but yeah, there are plenty of people in this. If you if you have any knowledge of 60s film and, and TV, um, I mean, this is there's a, there's a ton of people in this that you'll recognize. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Willett was um, Frank Maxwell. He was in Mr. Majestic, the Bronson film. Um, 
he was also in uh, the wild angels did some uh you know roger corman aip stuff you'd recognize him from that but there anyway um oh elisha cook that's the one that's the yes, one I was elisha cook jr uh, credited in this movie as elisha cook but it's elisha cook jr the he's in the killing he's in the maltese falcon uh a movie yeah. we covered previously on this show called hell's a poppin uh, wow. he's in a lot of stuff if you watch any movies from the 30s and 40s like a, a, a bunch of movies from the 30s and 40s you'll see him pop up a few times oh and he's in the night stalker too yeah okay oh ah, yeah house on haunted hill that's where i know him from yeah oh yeah yeah of course ton of stuff Jeez, what a career so charles dexter ward inherits his house he comes to arkham the villagers are not very welcoming to him tell him to get out but he and his wife go to like I mean, who's going to listen to villagers when you've got a palace that you just inherited? And uh, <laughs> they, he starts to undergo some changes. It, he plays a dual role, like I said, and I think this is actually a pretty good showcase for his two roles, or it, not two roles, like his two main modes, because he's very warm and caring as Charles Dexter Ward but then Charles Dexter Ward goes away more and more. And so we get less and less of them as the movie goes on. And we end up getting more of Joseph Kerwin. And of course they're putting makeup on him that does a lot of the work in differentiating which one we're seeing, but he also does more subtle than you would think things to differentiate the two. Like he's, he's not like arch and he's not campy as you might expect people like that are coming to these movies and just know him from his persona like, if you didn't know him as well as his wife did, you may not immediately know that th so he was different. Makeup or no, he is acting colder, but not like, not in a campy way it, it, between the two roles. And that's interesting because, like, I don't traditionally think of Vincent Price as campy, but I, but then you mentioned it uh, when we were planning this episode. And, and I guess he does have a reputation for that, but, but it's just not something that I would ever think about Vincent Price for some reason, maybe because I just, I, I, I love him so much, you know? Um, but, but I guess I can see how some would see that a lot of his performances are, are a little over the top. Well, I, I like the term arch more than camp for him. Yeah. But yeah. I, yeah. I, I do think he verges towards camp, especially later in his career or later at the, at, uh, towards the end of this cycle of the, AIP films that he was making he didn't really get camp in the the Poe films well no Pit in the Pendulum he gets pretty campy at times mm. there certainly came a point where he was putting a little bit more of a, a twinkle in his eye like more of a wink yeah. and he's laying on that voice that he, he was doing it a little bit knowingly and I'd, I'd say that verges to camp territory well, and, and this is a, a huge component of the other film we'll talk about, too. We'll get to that. But, um, yeah, I, I, it's funny. I, I never really consciously sat and, and, and thought that about him. But, but I, I can see, I can see um, how some would, would say that. So this movie is not incredibly accurate to the book. In, in the book, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, Charles Dexter Ward resurrects joseph Kerwin, and instead of being possessed by him he's actually just killed by joseph Kerwin, and joseph Kerwin takes oh. his place and he's he's admitted into the asylum because people realize something is wrong with him 
And since he's been dead for like a hundred years, his knowledge, he doesn't understand things that Charles Dexter Ward should. And people are like, well, something's gone wrong with him mentally. And so they put him in the asylum, but he's not, he's not being possessed. Oh, that, wow. I, I believe this is like years ago. And this is kind of my, me looking up what happened. Yeah. That's quite different. The, the story is narrated by Willett, the doctor played by Frank Maxwell, mm-hmm. as he's investigating what happened to Charles Dexter Ward. Um, so the, most of this is how it already happened by the story or by the time the story starts. It also is more tied directly into the Lovecraft mythology in the film. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, in the film, in the book, oh. in that there, there, I think uh, this, I think Yog sothoth is in this one as the, the monster. I think that's supposed to be the monster we see in the dungeon in this film. That's never quite explained. Okay. But in the book, it's Yog sothoth and I see. It's a enemy of Joseph Kerwin's coven of necromancers. And so uh that in the book that's how how it ends is that will it freeze Yogg-Sothoth? I I think I'm I I'm somebody who's been listening and knows a lot more than lo- about Lovecraft than I am. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going off of half remembered, you know, half remembered <laughs> plot details in Wikipedia summaries. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, cuz cuz I didn't pick up on any of that because I just I don't know Lovecraft very well. Yeah. So, it, well, OK, so I, I won't go into too many details then because it, it doesn't really, really matter. I'm just saying that they kind of took the the genesis of the idea and ran with it and made it their own, like kept in a, a few things. It's interesting to, the, to me then that the movie changes the location from the book. The book takes place in uh, I can't remember the name of it, um, but it's not. Arkham. Arkham is in the movie, which is a clear, like, everybody knows Arkham is from Lovecraft, but mm-hmm. that's not what the book was. They just did that in the movie, which seems clearly to be like, no, we're making this a Lovecraft thing. It's Arkham. It's Arkham because it's Lovecraft. <laughs> it also is strange that, that it keeps the monster and I don't think the book has the mutations, the curse on the, the surrounding town. Like, you know, because people all, all have the descendants all have like webbed hands. Which yeah. Like, like we're verging into the fishman territory. Yeah. But there's also like the mutations where they don't have eyes or mouths. And I don't remember that. So it's it's weird that in some ways the movie tries to make it more Lovecraftian, but then also really cuts it away from <laughs> what made it Lovecraftian. Oh, that's interesting. There's just a lot of stuff that they're, they threw at the wall with this. <laughs> and, and those no-eyed people, uh, that those are really creepy. Yeah. Um, th- there's, I think there's two scenes with those people. I, kn- I know there's one that I'm thinking of uh, where they're just being surrounded and they're walking sort of slowly. That, that was kind of terrifying. Yeah. This is actually, this movie's really good. I, I was surprised because I hadn't seen it in a few years. And I remember liking it. As, if for... for the first thing I, I remember about this movie is, oh, The Haunted Palace, that has that amazing score. I mm-hmm. love the music in this movie so much. Yeah. I have, the, sound, I have the soundtrack in my, my hard drive. Uh, I listen to it. I, I, I'd put it on my phone and listen to it on walks. It's, it's a really good soundtrack. Ronald Stein did the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great score. Actually, I think both of these movies have, have really great scores. Yes. I remembered liking this movie. I did like it when I first saw it. And then on this viewing, I was like, wow, this is actually like a really, really good, mo- a really good movie. Parts of it are dated. Parts of it don't work. I think 
Price is giving a good performance, as he almost always does. I think he's surrounded by a bunch of really interesting character actors. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. is in this. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the Lovecraftian elements that they throw in. I, I think it, it remains mysterious without really overshadowing the story. Uh, of the Poe films, I think this really starts the best run of them. I <clears> think because uh, after this, it's The Mask of the Red Death, which oh, is wow. my favorite. Yeah. And Tomb of Lygia, which is also very good. Some of the early Poe films, like Pit in the Pendulum, Fall of the House of Usher, they're good, but they're dated in kind of a, a weird, a weird early 60s way. Um, I think it's Pit in the Pendulum has this weird widescreen colorization to the process. It, it's kind of psychedelic, like he has that oh. little blotches of color over the negative that looks strange. <laughs> and all that's kind of cool, but it's it does really date the film i i think uh, the next three three films this mask of the red death and the tomb of lygia are, are become very mature like mask of the red death is basically his art film it's him doing bergman basically as, yeah as a, as a horror film and then tomb of lygia has really great understated cinematography it looks like really great outdoor because a lot of these movies are, are shot on sets like even arkham is is a set and Tomb of Lygia is, has a lot of outdoor cinematography. And that wasn't incredibly common with Corman and these Poe films because they had to film so quickly <laughs> and, yeah. and cheaply. But uh, they're, they're fun. But I think he, he really hits his stride with these three films. Yeah, and the, the sets in this are, are, that was one of the things that I noted in, in my notes. I, I, was, I really loved the sets in, in, this, in this movie and the production design and everything. And I think it's one of the, one of the best things about it, especially when you get to the house. I mean, that's just kind of incredible. Yeah, no, I really like the look of the town, even though they really do overdo it with the fog in the town. <laughs> but, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, it, I get it. I get it. it. It gives atmosphere. It covers some of the scenes in the sets. Yeah. But I, I do, I do like the look of it. I, I like the set design. Um, I like the decoration. I like, the look of this movie quite a bit. I really like the tavern too, um, which oddly enough is called Burning Man. And I got to wonder if that was an influence on Burning Man. <laughs> Those scenes in the tavern remind me a lot of American Werewolf in London. And yeah. I don't know if that was an influence for that or not, but uh, there's a really similar vibe to it and a, an unease and all these people, you know, congregating together in this tavern and they're kind of distrustful and there's something going on. It's there's a, there's a, a very strange like subtext to those scenes and they're very sort of uneasy kind of got the same vibe as a American werewolf. Yeah. It, it really struck me though, as well as just kind of that new England distrust of outsiders that seems to have yeah. a lot of fiction that takes place in new England. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Certainly, like that's a big thing in Stephen King. That's a big thing in Lovecraft. Lovecraft was all about kind of distrust of outsiders, so it makes sense. That's a good point. I I, I really like New England horror, and I I never thought about that. Um, but now that you've got me thinking about New England horror films, that, that's very much a theme in the ones that I'm that are, that are coming to mind. So they basically called this the Haunted Palace and had. Uh, Vincent Price read a couple of lines of the poem at the beginning of it and end. Yeah. Did you notice the credits misspelled Edgar Allan Poe? I 
did. I, I actually, I read that when I was reading about the film afterward. I didn't, I don't think I caught it at the time. Yeah. And but, the credits, um, he, his min, middle name is A-L-L-A-N, but the credits yeah. spell it with an E. That's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Which also, I'm wondering, I'm wondering then looking at Elisha Cook Jr. credited as Elisha Cook, wondering if that, and then like they even misspelled John Dierks name. He played uh, one of the villagers, Benjamin and Jacob West. John Dierks, his name is misspelled with an extra I in there, so he's Dierkies. Oh my God! <laughs> and they, I'm looking at it here; they actually misspelled. Jesus. Uh, they miss. They miscredited Lon Chaney, Elisha Cook, John Dierks, Bruno Bruno Vesota as the bartender, and I stand for Jolly. They miscredited. Oh they, they spelled all their names a little bit wrong. Well, it's AIP. They weren't exactly. <laughs> like their budgets and meticulousness i love aip but yeah that's <laughs> they do have a lot of problems <laughs> that's that's kind of ridiculous wow <laughs> i wonder if that's a record for a number of errors and credits oh i i can't believe it is <laughs> i'm sure there's something out there much worse I do like I do like that this has the Roger Corman lightning. I swear that lightning flash appears in most of these Poe films here. Yeah, I I I, I really liked that too. I found it really fascinating that as far as I can discern, there's a lot of thunder and lightning in this film, but there's no actual rain. No, no, a lot of a lot of moisture in the air though. <laughs> yeah, a lot of, a lot of fog. Uh, I I found that kind of fascinating, and I don't know if that was like budgetary constraints or if it was a conscious choice to make it a little more like like surreal and and weird um but but it definitely stood out to me because i i always make a note of when there's rain in films because it's just a trope that i like but um yeah lots of thunder lots of lightning no rain very very strange um and i also i i don't know if about you but i i got a i get a really like strong hammer vibe from this film too would would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I I could see that it it has the sort of gothic horror, the large castle like structure and the entranced women walking at night. Um, I can see that it definitely does have some of the the hallmarks of uh of that 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 studio. Yeah, and and so that would I would say that um. I've seen quite a lot of Hammer now, and and with with Hammer and with this film, I think I like these films a lot, and and they are visually arresting, especially, uh, and they're very easy to watch and get sort of swept up in them. But uh, I I often have a hard time like thinking of them as as like top tier films for some reason. I, I feel like they're very um, they're almost like vignettes. Yeah. Um, they they, they kind of come off as as. I guess vignettes is the best way I could put it. They, sometimes they don't feel as fully fleshed out as I wish they were, but they're very easy to watch and they're very, to, very easy to get like consumed uh, by. Yeah, I, I guess I can, I can see what you're saying. Did you, did you find a little more substance in this than I'm, than I'm uh, alluding to? Oh, maybe not. This is, I thought, a very good movie. I don't know. It's, it's kind of a weird thing to say because I don't want to say anything like too negative about this film i I, i'm oh yeah yeah i don't know it it, i'm having trouble 
kind of formulating a response to that because I can to I can totally see what you're saying, but I don't I don't necessarily see anything bad in that. Like I I think some mm -hmm. of the best Hammer films really do like the Frankenstein films really do get at something incredibly interesting and can be very chilling. Um, some of the non like monster hammer films like scream of fear, I think it have very like interesting and arresting stories. Um, and then mm -hmm. even the fun ones like captain Chronos vampire hunter. So I don't know, I guess maybe, maybe I do see a little bit more, but I can tell what you're saying because even some of the, um, the big hammer films, like the, the Dracula films i'm i enjoy watching them i really like watching them but they kind of just like slide off my mind like i don't i don't <laughs> i remember some of the big moments in dracula but it, it's not a movie that i'm like super in love with like others but then other hammer films i do really love and i would say that about some of the vincent price gothics like well speaking of his anthologies like twice told tales mm -hmm. um are, are movies that like in the moment I enjoy watching them, but then uh, sometimes some of twice told some <laughs> some of the parts of twice told tales are, are rough to get through. But then once they're over, I, that's it. I don't like think about them anymore. Um, yeah. Where, whereas other ones, and this one I don't. It, it didn't stick in my mind the way the Mask of the Red Death does, but mm -hmm. it, it's getting there. So I, I can see what you're saying. I think I. I fall somewhere in the middle on this one that this is kind of like a a midpoint between the more i don't want to say forgettable but the more ephemeral ephemeral ones and the more quote-unquote weighty ones that that I, I really rank high yeah and i think you kind of put it in a in a good way like like hammer kind of would you say slides off my brain or something yeah like yeah yeah you watch it and you're into it and then it's like oh well okay <laughs> like yeah I, I kind of had the f same feeling about dracula but i, I love the peter cushing and the frankenstein films um but quatermass in the pit is probably my favorite hammer film which is probably not one that most people would think of that movie i think is fantastic um or curse of the werewolf is, is really good too with um oliver reed but but yeah it, 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 to me this movie has the same kind of quality to it like yeah it's it's really cool it's easy to watch i i like it but for some reason it just not that i require substance in films i i love a lot of stuff that's just sort of i don't want to say superficial because it sounds negative but um i i think a movie can be great for a lot of different reasons it doesn't have to have strong themes or even a story sometimes if if it's just a visual feast i can go along with that um, and that's kind of how I see this and, and a lot of the hammer ones too. It's, um, but again, you know, you sound like you're much more into Lovecraft than, than I am. I'm sure I would be if I had more experience. Um, so as someone who's into Lovecraft, do you find a lot in this, um, that would keep you, that would bring you back to it? Cause you well, said, I'm... you said it's kind of rising in your esteem too. Well, no, I would say that I would, um, I would come back to this because this is a movie that I, I do like on its own. Mm. The, the Lovecraft elements are, are really superficial because um, it's oh, changed okay. so much from what the book is uh, apparently. But oh, it, that's true. Yeah, yeah. It also doesn't have like the really big, but it's basically Arkham and the fact that some people have webbed hands and that, that mysterious monster in the basement that 
are are Lovecraftian. Everything else, I mean, quote unquote Lovecraftian. It's the stuff like he had a lot of different modes or a lot of different, not a lot of different styles, but a, a you know variety of types of stories. Mm-hmm. I don't even really think of this as a Lovecraft tale the way that I do say like like the Boris Karloff uh, Die Monster Die. That's color out of space. That's much more Lovecraftian, or mm-hmm. um, uh, the Dunwich Horror, which I, I don't think is great, but as Dean Stockwell. Or uh, it, how about Reanimator? That, that's a movie I love, but I don't know the source material very well. Oh yeah, the the movie is terrific. It, <laughs> I mean, it's it's not incredibly accurate. Like the, he makes a lot of changes to it. Again, I haven't read the story in in oh geez, probably almost twenty years now. Um, <sighs> But I believe I, I remember the story being much more picaresque. Like it, it's a bunch of little tiny adventures and chapters that kind of all just like this happened, and then because it it was serialized, and so it's like here he is in this one, he's at one school, and now over here he's in a different town, or he's found a new house, and he's continuing experiments, and it just goes on and on until it kind of like reaches the final chapter. And the movie I think streamlines everything and is just like this is the character in this story. We're not. <laughs> We're not dealing with everything. I'm not, I mean, I'm not going to say it's like incredibly accurate, but it, it is Lovecraftian. The, the Lovecraft as an author is so weird to me because everything is about like, Oh, it was indescribable. And then he'll, he'll spend three pages kind of describing it. And it's all, (laughs) it's, you know, Cyclopean and like, he, he he uses all these words, this florid language that doesn't really describe anything. Like you can't get a mental picture of anything, but he is using a lot of words as descriptions. What I found most terrifying when I was reading him. And like I said, I was, I was kind of, when I was in college, I started reading Lovecraft and I went through, um, I got a couple of those collected stories. Like there were, there were, I can't remember who was, um, I've got one right over here. What, can I read it? Was it Del Rey? Yeah, Del Rey was releasing these Lovecraft collections that were that were um, themed by like the Lovecraft mythos or one. Here's one that's all the stories about dreams. And when you read them all in that manner, what becomes scary about Lovecraft is how much they tie into each other almost subconsciously. He'll have references to other stories that aren't big deal references. You, You know, you would read it and it would just be like, okay, well, but if you remember that character name you'll realize like oh there's a lot more to this person and it, it's a it's something i think we're more used to now with um you know the shared universes of marvel and everything yeah but, but in that like they are kind of calling attention to how much how they're shared like when a character pops up there's like a musical sting or there, there's dialogue that lets you know it's a big deal we're seeing this character um lovecraft wrote in a way that it all really did feel it was glimpses into one universe. Like these are people that are existing in the same world in a way that, that was, I found like really unsettling when I was reading them, even in the stories that weren't meant that wasn't meant to be unsettling. It was just like, Oh my gosh, this guy, like he is writing like this is all incredibly real to him. Like, like this is his reality in a way. Oh, I'm I'm not saying that that's true. Like we know he had problems. Lovecraft was, had a lot of, you know, mental issues. He was, horribly racist and and xenophobic oh. and afraid of everything and oh, i actually didn't know that wow oh yeah yeah a lot of his stories talk about like 
you just you know dark-skinned foreigners and you can you can see his whole thing about you know fish people and like the fear of of miscongenation i'm not going to pronounce it correctly miscongenation the the you know interracial pairings like the, the fear of that um and he he has some in like just straight up racism in some of his stories oh yeah but he's he's also uh completely afraid like he had this weird habit of he wanted to be seen as very old so he would have like anybody that was even like three years younger to him call him like what did he have him call like call him grandpa or something like he would he would just make younger people call him by these like old honorifics or um (laughs) and he just wanted to be seen as like a kindly old grandpa like the the elder statesman and and you know he, there was a lot of of preening and posturing in his life, and um, so he he did have like his mental issues. But it, it, his stories, when they're written, really like just the way that they're they're interwoven seemed very like subliminal. Like maybe he wasn't even aware he was doing it. Oh wow, that's that's all really interesting. <laughs> Some of it's a little horrifying, but yeah, um, yeah, like wow. I, Part of me wants to really delve into his writing and, and part of me now does not. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. We've gone pretty far afield here. Do you have anything <laughs> more that you want to say about the haunted palace? Um, I think we, we covered pretty much everything I wanted to mention. Um, although I, I did w- want to say that near the end of the film, it kind of Gave off a vibe of uh, Night of a Thousand Cats. Have you seen that? Oh, I have not. That's a a really (laughs) bizarre um, exploitation film. I think it's, I think it's, it's Mexican. Yeah, it's Rene Cardona. Um, That's another thing I saw at Horathon, the Aero Theater Horathon. It's a very strange film about a guy who flies around in a helicopter and picks up women, takes them to his castle and, Wines them and dines them, and then uh, uh, murders them and feeds them to his cats. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's so there's something about the end of this movie, the third act, especially that I was just getting getting those kind of vibes from it. Um, although I definitely liked the Haunted Palace a lot more than Night of huh. a Thousand Cats. Well, hey, that's on. It's free on Tubi. Maybe I'll watch it. Yeah, yeah. I, I have seen it on. Uh, uh, Prime too. I think I, I think I rewatched it maybe two two three years ago again. Oh wow! And, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, there is some animal cruelty in it. There's there's one shot in particular yeah. where he f- flings a cat into the air. Um, not real happy about that, but um, I don't know. I kind of got a similar vibe. Although again, like I said, I think this is a much better film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Much more enjoyable film, too. Well, we'll um, I'll have to I'll add that to my watch list. Cool, um, but yeah, as we were saying earlier, you know, on the whole, I, I did like this quite a bit, and and I will probably return to it. But but it doesn't quite get to like a like the top tier uh, for me. No, um, no, I think I think this is good. This is a a good example of this era of Roger Corman and Vincent Price. Um, not that I'm an expert, but I. I think this is, this is maybe mid tier. This is, I mean, if I'm being generous, this is top tier, but like, if I'm being really generous in just that, like, yeah, you should watch this. This is a good movie, but it, it's a little bit below what I consider to be my favorites. Like, uh, like I keep saying masks of death, abominable doctor fives, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find myself when it comes to price, especially, I find myself kind of weighing everything against Abominable Doctor Vibes now. Uh, you can't I do mean, that. You can't do that. It's that movie is like you can't. <laughs> everything's <laughs> going to come up short. Like I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's such a good movie. Yeah, and, and I've I've been lucky enough to see Vibes in the theater I, two or three times oh, now. Yeah, lucky you. Yeah, because I saw it at the Be- New Beverly, and I saw it at the Arrow, um, and the 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 um, the screenwriter was there too. Oh yeah, I saw that uh, William Goldstein because he's he's mm-hmm. still basically writing that character. He wrote a, a couple of sequels. Yeah, he was selling the books there, um, and I need uh, to get those. I, I do need to get those. But yeah, Fibes, you know. Fibes is fantastic, and I don't know if I'm going to find a Vincent Price film better. Although, um, well, we'll 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 discuss that later. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, I think we we both been kind of like champing at the bit to talk about our next film. Um, I I I don't know. I I'm I feel a little bit bad for this movie. I think this is a really good pairing, but uh, I I think we just clearly both want to talk about our next film so why don't we take a little qu- a quick break <laughs> you guys listen to the trailer we'll be right back to discuss witch finder general aka the conqueror worm with the tranquility of rural england shattered by civil war evil was spawned at a time of strife in the land take him stern look for the devil's marks upon him right help it you two Pounding the innocent in violence and terror, this evil man showed no mercy in the pursuit and interrogation of his victims. He was called the Witch Finder General. And amidst the horror of the witch hunt, a story of tender young love. Didn't your uncle just say you must early to bed? He did. And isn't he a wise man? He is. But even their innocence is cruelly corrupted by the vile touch of the Witch Finder General. My motive in coming here was to find the truth. Vincent Price is the Witchfinder General. Lust and greed were his only gods. The money from the magistrate. Nine guineas in silver. Good. Now we can leave. Ian Ogilvy as Richard Marshall. He stood alone against the forces of devilish destruction. And tis in thy sight, O Lord, that I hereby swear I shall not rest from the pursuit of his murderers till they stand before thee ready to answer to thee for their sins. Rupert Davies as John Lowe's. Master Marshall, welcome. Patrick Weimark as Oliver Cromwell. Amongst the most pleasurable aspects of victory, gentlemen, is the opportunity it affords to reward valor. It ranks almost with good food. And Wilfred Bramble. And uh, what line of business might you be in? God's business, witch finding. Witch finding. Oh, that's nice. That's very nice. And introducing Hilary Dwyer as Sarah. Filmed in authentic detail and photographed with piercing realism against the actual background of peaceful villages and quiet countryside. Never has England looked so beautiful, yet been so violent. I'm your man friend. John Stern, they call me. Man's inhumanity to man portrayed on the screen so vividly that you flinch. So real that you too will fear the witch finder general. Be the first to see it. Be the first to talk about it. The Witch Finder General. 
1968's Witchfinder General, based on the historical novel by Ronald Bassett, itself loosely based on the real-life figure of Matthew Hopkins, is an outlier in what people think of as Vincent Price's horror persona. There's no camp, no archness, and a surprising amounts of brutality in the story of a man traveling the English countryside in the mid-1600s, torturing those accused of witchcraft. Back in America, AIP once again changed the title to try and capitalize on the popularity of the Poe films. As by now, there hadn't been a new one in four years, so they retitled this The Conqueror Worm. Had Price recite a few lines from the poem over the opening and ending of the film and tried to convince people it was Poe. Now, I've seen this a few times, and my opinion, my opinion of it has only grown over the years. Uh, I wasn't initially a fan when I first saw this. I kind really? of had a certain image of my in my mind of Vincent Price. I was watching, you know, I was watching the the earlier Poe films, House uh, called the House of Usher, uh, the Abominable Doctor Fibes. Uh, you know, I was watching more fun movies, and and this movie mm -hmm. didn't quite fit my conception because I went into it expecting that like, oh, this will be kind of fun. It's not fun at all. It, it is <laughs> yeah. it, like there's no humor. It's violent as hell. There's repeated sexual assault, and the innocent in this movie suffer horribly. the The, the soundtrack to this yeah. movie, it, like, not talking about music, music's great, but the the sound I think of when I think of this movie is just people screaming, like really anguished screams. Yeah, yeah, I I <laughs> I, I would slightly disagree. I think there's a little bit of humor. But it's very brief. No, I, I agree. But the humor is not a like. It's not like kind of the winking kind of humor, or uh, that I, I was maybe expecting. And, and certainly not from no, Price. Vincent Price's normal warmth. It's replaced by like this chilling cruelty. I just, I, I kind of didn't like it. It wasn't. I didn't know what to make of it when I first saw it, and then I watched it again, and realized what was going on. I, I realized like, oh no, there's there is something here this is good and now every time i've seen it like especially this last time i was just like man this is like this is really good it's a, a shame we never got anything more like this from you know because the well the director we'll talk about him more later yeah yeah it's interesting because you're saying that that you know price's demeanor in this was, was so different than anything you'd seen and i guess that was a real source of contention with him and director michael reeves I didn't know that till today until I was reading up on it, but I guess there was a lot of miscommunication between them too, because Price didn't understand that, that Michael Reeves was trying to get a very subtle performance out of him and like something more menacing. And Price was more inclined to uh, chew the scenery a little more or go a little more silly or camp. Um, but I guess these two did not get along on set, which I was really surprised by because this movie really blew me away. I, 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 it's probably not quite my favorite Vincent Price film, although it's right up there with Fibes. But I would say that this is probably the best performance I've seen Vincent Price give. It's one of the best performances, I agree. He's very good in this. Mm -hmm. He's very scary. He's very unsettling, very cruel. And he plays it all really, really well. Like He's almost disinterested in it. Like it's such a weird distance in him, and and you're right. Yeah. He did not get along with director Michael Reeves. 
this was Michael Reeves' third film. He was kind of seen as as real, like real up and coming new wave of British horror director. Uh, I think he had done The Sorcerers with Boris Karloff and She Beast uh, with Barbara Steele. Mm-hmm. So he was kind of seen as like a, this this great up and coming talent. And he wrote this movie with Donald Pleasance in mind. Like that was his idea. And yeah. Yeah. The producers or one of the producers for AIP gave it to Vincent Price and were like, we, we want you in this. I mean, they had him under contract. Um, I have this, uh, I have this book on the films of Vincent Price and it has a bunch of uh, uh, archival materials in it. I was reading through it about this. And the person basically told Vincent Price in a letter that Reeves was ecstatic that Price agreed to be in the movie. The quote was, okay, Reeves, quote, wafted off in a fairy-like cloud of ecstasy when he heard we were casting you in the lead. <laughs> Which is really? not true, because when Reeves was told that Price was going to yeah. be in the film, he was <laughs> very angry. He was adamantly against casting Vincent Price. Yeah, he didn't even greet him at the airport. I, I remember reading yeah, that. He, <laughs> he refused to go. He was very upset. And I have to admit, I understand. I completely understand because, well, we both said it. We would not have expected Price to be in this type of movie. You think of Vincent Price in horror, you think of a certain class of film. You think of the William Castle films. You think of the Roger Corman films. You think of, you know, his his later appearances in, in kind of like... Um, well, Dead Heat in the 80s is one. Yeah. You don't think of him as being like serious horror the way we consider serious horror, even though we think even people who are his fans would probably not think of him in something like this. But here he is, right? And this movie is incredibly brutal, especially for the time, given, you know, 1968. I, I mean, I am yeah. shocked by some of the stuff that happens in this film. And I've seen this before. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they actually had to tone it quite a bit down for 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 the final well for the final shooting script. I mean, the original script had a lot or several scenes that were much more brutal than what we even got. And then there was this sort of push and pull. And then at some point, Reeves was like, "I'm not cutting more out of this film. Like this is <laughs> this is what you're gonna get." But even after it came out, there was some censorship issues, and it had a lot of trouble and came to America, got a different name, which we'll get to. And so it's just this, this movie has a fascinating history and I I immediately loved it. So I was really surprised to hear how much trouble (laughs) they encountered trying to just get it off the ground and Reeves and Price didn't get along. It's really fascinating how much, how much went went on behind the scenes with this movie. It is. And like on the first day of filming, Vincent Price fell off of his horse and he was not seriously injured but he was bruised and he spent the rest of the day in his hotel room um just resting reeves wouldn't wouldn't visit him well and i think that's related to another anecdote i read because reeves had gotten vincent price to shoot a gun when he was on this horse and he wanted him to shoot it right above this horse's head while he was riding it and vincent price was like you know this horse is gonna go crazy if i do that and reeves was like adamant that he do it and so he shot the gun and of course he fell off. And I, so I think that's the same incident unless he fell off twice. But that really illustrates how these two just did not get along on the set. Which is funny because you you 
contrast that with the cast and crew, there's a scene where um, uh, in this book it's recounted by uh, it doesn't say what credit what what credit he had on the film. He was a crew member on this, recounting a, a time when the catering truck did not arrive one day. And so Vincent Price went into town on his own and bought all the supplies and came back and made lunch for 60 people, made like pasta because he was a chef. He had, you know, cookbooks and everything. Oh, like wow. he would cook for everybody out of his own pocket and on his own dime and do it himself. He was normally so warm and that it was just the fact that Reeves really didn't want him in the movie. And to, to kind yeah. of put a, a button on that, I, I do want to read this from the same book vincent price well vincent price said during the filming um that a lot of the problem with reeves was reeves would say cut vincent price stop doing that and like vince or he's like he cut stop doing that and vincent price well what do you want me to stop doing he's like just don't do it again and so they'd roll again and vincent <laughs> price would act and he's like stop you're doing it again he's like what am i doing he's like just stop it and like he wouldn't tell him what to do and so he didn't know what he was supposed to be doing in this film that once the movie came out, he had a complete revelation. He was like, that's what he wanted me to do. If he had just told me right. to give a more menacing, subdued performance, I would have done it. But he didn't tell me. But still, he wrote a 10-page letter to Michael Reeves after the movie came out, after he finally saw it. And yeah, he, yeah. He wrote, I'm going to quote from some of it. They don't have the full letter, but I'm going to quote a little bit. He wrote, a very impressive, moving, and exciting picture. Congratulations. And it goes on about how great. I'm sure you have a big success and a long feather in your cap. So, my dear Michael, in spite of the fact that we didn't get along too well, mostly my fault as I was physically and mentally indisposed at that particular moment of my life, I do thank you. Or I do think you have made a very fine picture. And what's more, I liked what you gave me to do. Wow. Uh, to which Michael Reeves wrote back basically like, I knew you'd think so. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I read about that today, and I'm glad you actually have the letter because I immediately thought, I want to see this letter. And wow, that's 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 really like gracious of him to, it is, to do especially that. Especially because apparently and, he just refused to talk to him. He was just horrible to him the entire time. And yet, yeah. Michael Reeves was set to direct the oblong box with Vincent Price. Their, their follow-up oh, wow. picture, they were going to do another picture, uh, but he dropped out of that we can get into it, I guess, but Michael Reeves, very troubled. He ended up dying uh, just a few months after this movie came out of a barbiturate and alcohol overdose. I had read in some areas that he had some sources that he had committed suicide. It sounds like he had some undiagnosed depression that, that was being treated (laughs) with not the best, like most helpful methods. Maybe he was self-medicating. So I'm not sure if it was, if it was, um, if it was like intentional that he overdosed or completely accidental, because there's, there's stories people would talk about that he would just spend months sitting in a corner. Like they would just come into the production offices and he'd just sit in the corner all day and, and be despondent. And like, I mean, clearly this was a, he was a troubled person that I think, I think that's given a lot more weight to the three movies that he's done that he's now kind of lauded as somebody who would have been, you know, the next big thing, this movie, I think the, some British magazine ranked this the 15th greatest horror film of all time. Yeah. I saw that. Yeah. Well, maybe I don't think it's that great, 
I think I think people are really mm-hmm. putting in a lot of his potential, a lot of his you know like unrealized potential when they when they grade this movie. Yeah. Although I do think it is a superb movie. I do think this is this is top tier. This is like this is. Oh yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if it would make my top five, but this is like a really great Vincent Price film. Yeah, th- this ticked a ton of boxes for me. I mean, because I I love folk horror. I love Vincent Price. I love witch horror. Um, I love this time period of filmmaking. And apparently this is part of uh, what um, someone called the unholy trinity of folk horror. I didn't know that. Along with two other films, The Wicker Man, of course, and um, uh, one of my favorites, Blood on Satan's Claw, um, directed by Piers Haggard. So I guess there was a documentary in in 2010 where folk horror as a term got, kind of got popularized. That particular strain of horror is a, is a is a big favorite of mine, and I guess this is this has found a, a real audience because that's another interesting thing is this was sort of uh, eviscerated when it came out for for several reasons. It, it, my understanding is it did decently at the box office, but in terms of uh, critical reception it, it was not lauded yeah i'm not i'm not too sure i, re- I the book in here uh, that i got that I'm, I'm reading from is mainly where i looked at some reviews they have pull quotes they th- this book typically pulls the best ones so um i i can't ah. i couldn't tell you i didn't actually look uh too much into it <laughs> yeah a lot of people criticized the violence and they thought it was very exploitive and way too too bloody and and they they thought that there was no justification for any of the violence, which I thought was interesting because I, I I see a lot of thematic heft in this movie, and uh, a lot of different things going on, and a lot of allegory. I, I, I find the criticism strange, but I, I guess the tides turned on it after a while, and and now it's kind of considered a, a like a cult classic. Yeah, I would say um, I would not consider this exploitative only because nothing that happens in this movie is meant to be titillating mm-hmm. even though there is in some in some cuts there is nudity um there is a lot of sex there is right. violence that is shockingly gory um there are characters just reveling in all of this and yet the audience is never to be, never supposed to be like wow that's awesome the audience is supposed to be horrified by all of it and i think yeah. you are i watched this movie and i think the first time i saw it I was watching it. I'm like, okay, here's the setup that we've got this, this soldier, this young, fresh faced soldier and the woman that he loves, he's going off to, to, you know, he's going back to join the army. Um, they're going to be married. Uh, she's being cared for by the priest in this small village. It's very idyllic. And then we get Matthew Hopkins is, we see that he is being directed towards the village because somebody is accusing the priest of being a warlock. Yeah. And so when I first saw this movie, I was like, okay, this is the way the movie is going to go is Vincent Price is going to be there and he's going to get to this town and the soldier is going to have to save the day. Like he's going to get the town into an uproar. The soldier is going to come back and save the day. And then the bad guys win. Like Matthew Hopkins, (laughs) Vincent Price sleeps with like, tells the girl, like, I will go easy on him if you Mm -hmm. sleep with me. The, the priest is then killed. Yeah. The girl is then raped by by Vincent Price's right-hand yeah. man. This is his name, Stern, I think. Yeah. 
they just they they kind of just go through town and they just like they're they just torture whoever they want they rape whoever they want and then they go to the next town and this all happens in the first act and i'm like i thought this was going to be the full movie <laughs> and i thought this movie was going to be a happy ending but we're only 20 minutes in this is rough and it's bleak i yeah there is a, yeah bleak bleak is perfect there is a bleakness to this movie uh, especially the ending like i mean we're jumping all over the place but yeah the ending of this movie, which apparently was a very last minute rewrite, an onset rewrite, because yeah. they, they couldn't do what their original plan was. And mm -hmm. it, it came out, it's so haunting. It's so like bleak is I I'm, I'm trying to think of a different word besides bleak. <laughs> I get, get the <laughs> get the thesaurus over here. Because uh we've got the soldier and his bride, who, who the bride, by the way, has been raped by both of the you know, Vincent Price and Stern, Hopkins and Stern. And they're they're tied up and they're being tortured, and the soldier two buddies come in and you know the soldier gets loose and he brutally chops Vincent Price up with an axe. The end of the movie is the soldiers come in and shoot Vincent Price so that he's not just sitting there being hit with an axe. And the soldier is like, "You took him from me. You took him from me." Like he wanted to keep going. And yeah, that's the end of the movie. Is just everybody is screaming and he's angry that he wasn't <laughs> able to kill Vincent Price. And it's like. Holy crap! This movie yeah. is is brutal. Yeah, um, and then it's a it's a it's a shot of her screaming, and you don't really know why or what's going on. It's 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 a fascinating ending, and I, I didn't know until today that it wasn't what they had planned because what they had planned was the soldier comes in and shoots uh, uh, Vincent Price, but then also shoots um, what's his name Marshall as well who's just going, you know, he was going crazy on him with this ax, but the, the plan was the soldier was supposed to shoot both of them. But I got to say, like, I think the rewrite that they did at the last minute makes a much more, um, makes the ending a lot heavier. And it also makes it more open-ended, which I think is an improvement really, because it gives you a lot to think about. And then as it freezes on her face screaming, you want to know what happened to these people. You, you want to know, uh, you know, after after they got out of this, where did they go? Why did did he end up running in and shooting uh, Hopkins? I, I, I feel like he did it out of some sort of uh, loyalty to to Marshall. And maybe he thought it would. It would it would help him get out of trouble with the army because he was already a deserter. So maybe he's thinking, well, let me take care of Hopkins and then, you know, you just get the hell out of town or something. I, I don't know. But there's a there's a lot of questions that this ending leaves you with. And I think that's one of the best parts of the movie. It's because you, you really you can't get it out of your mind after you see it. Yeah, definitely. Although I think he came in and shot Hopkins. Because they come in, the, the two soldiers, and they are horrified by what they see. They, mm -hmm. like, they look away. They're like, oh, my God. I think he shot him because he was basically like, I've got to stop this. I've got to put him out of his misery. Or mm -hmm. I don't like my reading on that. And who knows? Because when they shot the soldier shooting the gun, the plan was that he was going to shoot twice. But they only, shot, they only filmed him shooting once. And that's right. why they, they had the little continuity error. They're like, oh, we can't. We don't have the footage of him. Well, and, and, and he was supposed to shoot Marshall, right? Or do I have that wrong? Uh, I, I'm not actually, 
I, I can't actually remember because there was another version in the in the script where I think he puts he ends up like uh like stabbing him with a, a pike or something like that. Uh, Vincent Price. Um, mm -hmm. So there's this, the script version and then the one that they were shooting that was, I think, different. From yeah, it season. says, yes, Swallow was supposed to use both his and Harcourt's flint lock pistols to shoot both Hopkins and Richard dead. Okay. So now, that's a really interesting way to go with the script. <laughs> so I, I, I actually think it works better that they didn't shoot Richard. Um, I, I, I think it's I think it's a better ending. It, it is. But I, my read on it was that he was putting him out of his misery. Okay. And that, that he was just like, he had to stop it. You probably saw this in your mm -hmm. research. Did you see how Ian Ogilvie, the soldier, was wailing on Vincent Price? Like, he was, it's obviously a fake axe, but he yeah. was, like, you could see Vincent <laughs> Price curled up on the ground and he's <laughs> bouncing with every hit. And it's like, he's not faking. He's really going to town on him with that fake axe. Did you yeah, anything about this in the in your research? Yeah, and apparently Reeves wanted him to do it that way. Yeah, He's like just just go to town on him. And and so so somebody padded out Vincent Price's costume because they knew he was going to do it, so he, so he wouldn't get hurt. Oh, I, I, I think was watching it, a, it, I was like, because I mean. It's not a real axe. It's obviously not getting stuck in him, so you know that because he's pulling it out too quick. But I was watching it, thinking like, man, he's really trying to kill him. Like, <laughs> Ian Ogilvy in this movie, I, I, I know he's been in some stuff since, but he mm -hmm. is like as as subdued as Vincent Price is. Ian Ogilvy is just like barely bridled rage <laughs> through this movie. Yeah. He is all emotion and passion in this movie. And he's it's great. a great performance. In fact, in fact, I, I would say that pretty much every performance in this is, is pretty great. I mean, I mean, just stem to stern. I, I, I think everybody in this is, is really good. Um, and uh, apparently uh, Hillary Dwyer who played Sarah um, I guess she just died last year of, of COVID. Unfortunately, I, I I was really disappointed to hear oh, that. Yeah, because um, she, she's I, good in it too. Yeah, no, she's good. Everybody in this is good. You're right. Um, speaking of dying, I'm going to definitely cut this out because this is too dark. I just realized that uh, Reeves died on my birthday. I mean, nine oh. years before I was born, but <laughs> oh, um, oh, that sucks. Well, I mean. He died. We already knew that. Oh well, yeah. I, <laughs> um, oh, go ahead. Also, oddly enough, um, Patrick Weimark is in this, and I know him from Blood and Blood on Satan's Claw. Um, he plays Cromwell in this, which is a kind of interesting scene. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Just for one, one uh, that one scene, yeah. one moment. I forgot. Like oh, he Cromwell. Th there's a couple of interesting cameos in this. Uh, Wilfred Bramble is in it in one of the only funny scenes in the movie. He plays like a farmer. Um, it's about a minute long. And I, I, I chuck, I actually had to rewind it cause I was laughing so hard. Um, I know him from a hard day's night. Uh, cause he plays Paul's grandfather. Oh, he's a very clean man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, most British people would probably know him from Steptoe and son. I think that was, that was the, his most popular thing in Britain. But the funny part is uh, Margaret Nolan is also in this and she was also in A Hard Day's Night. She plays one of the women in the tavern. So there's two uh, cast members from A Hard Day's Night in this and they're, they're barely in it. But I just think that's kind of interesting. Um, 
yeah, there's a there's a lot of great people in this. Have have you seen um, Ian Ogilvy and anything else? Uh, I looked it up and I, I I had seen something else or a couple of things he was in, but I didn't like recognize him from those. I didn't go, oh, that's that guy. I see. Yeah, I I don't I don't think I don't think I've seen him in anything else. I'll have to look it up. I know he's in like the radio play versions of some of the James Bonds uh, that they that uh... they've been doing recently. He's in like. He's in like Death Becomes Her. Um, okay. Like he he uh, I don't know if he like had a stage career, but he he did a lot of TV. I see. And one person we have to talk about who I think is the most menacing character in this is uh, John Stern, played by Robert Russell. Um, he's Hopkins' right hand man, and he's just basically. Um, He's the, the the heavy of the movie. I I find him more menacing than even Vincent Price because he's just the one that carries all this out. Vincent Price is the one that sits back and just kind of commands everybody to do this stuff. And I, I'm really I just hate Stern in this movie. <laughs> he's the one that does all. And then there's this 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 um, little rivalry between the two of them that's really interesting. Like you can tell they don't like each other, these characters, and they kind of do things to get back at each other. Um, like the whole the whole reason that Stern um, rapes Sarah is because he knows that um, if Hopkins finds out that he's going to to torture and probably kill the priest. So there's this there's this big like you know it's like an onion <laughs> keep keep peeling it. There's a lot of weird motivations in this movie, and um, the more you think about it, and the more you see it, there's there's, there's a lot of things going on. And th- this rivalry between Stern and Hopkins, I think, is is kind of fascinating. I mean, they're both awful people, um, but how they kind of get at each other through the movie, I, I think, is is fuels a lot of it. Yeah, yeah, because uh, like Hopkins leaves him at one point, mm-hmm. and then he comes back and he's like, "Oh no, I wasn't going to leave you. I've got your money right here." Yeah, have you seen? I don't know. Have you seen any of Michael Reeves' other films? I'm going to guess not. Uh, you haven't. No. Well, since he, no. he only has She Beast and Sorcerers, I have not either. But I see that I can, I can get both of them easily, digital rental or or streaming. I'm definitely going to be watching the Sorcerers soon. I love Karloff. If I were to make a horror Mount Rushmore, um, Karloff and Price would be the first ones, no doubt about it. Like, I wouldn't even have to think Karloff and Price. I, I would have to think more about the others. But I, I love wow. I love Karloff about the level I love Vincent Price. So I will be watching that. Oh, wow. I did notice today I was looking it up because I was looking at, like, the She-Beast, uh, when it was released, it, it was on a double bill in, uh, well, the marketing that I saw the, the newspaper ad for, it was on a double bill with uh, the embalmer, uh. which, which I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of a very odd, not very good proto giallo. Proto giallo. Um, oh, okay. It, about this like wetsuit wearing killer stalking the streets of Venice or the, the, you know, the canals. And it, it's not very good. It seems like it was kind of financed by the, uh, the Venice Tourism Council because it's really just a travelogue for a lot of the movie, <laughs> uh, but it it's it is interesting in in 
certain respects. Like if you're a fan of that type of film, um, the oh yeah yeah AGFA, the American Genre Film Archive they they put out a a pretty good release of it you can download they're not they're not doing a physical release but they have a a print of it that you can you can download for like a couple bucks like i think i got it for five bucks oh wow yeah i'm definitely i'm definitely going to check that out because i I do have an interest in that kind of stuff so it's boring it's not very good but like (laughs) if so i wouldn't make it a priority and if you know but i i wanted to support support the uh i wanted to support agfa and i like what they do and I was like, uh, yeah, five bucks. I can do that. Nice. <laughs> Would you agree, uh, or is it just me that that Stern is more oh. like loathsome in this than than Hopkins? Yeah. Um. I. Well, I don't know because Stern is more open about what he's doing. That he is just in it for himself. He's he's just gonna get as much money and sex as he can, and he likes inflicting violence. I I think Hopkins. L- lies to himself that he's doing it for he's doing it for the lord he's doing it for the king yeah like yeah he, he pretends to be righteous stern never pretends to be anything he is as sleazy as you could be in this in this period he's like unshaven <laughs> and kind of always a little sweaty he's like yeah. very uncouth and he's smoking or you know spitting and he's enjoying it outwardly like that so that's really disturbing and he does things that i don't think hopkins would do because there's like Hopkins at one point after he he sleeps with Sarah Hopkins does go easy on the priest and he's like I don't think he ever says he's going to save his life but it it seems like he's either going to give him an easier death or maybe he'll orchestrate it so that he can go um it, it's not I don't I don't remember exactly if he said what he's going to do there but it, it never it doesn't happen that way either mostly because of Stern so it seems like 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 maybe he he can be reasoned with in some way, but Stern is just like, no, you're not going to get between me and torturing people. I, I just yeah. want to torture people. Yeah, so, yeah, he's just like completely evil. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I I don't know. Is it is the person who is completely evil, but lets you know they're completely evil, worse than the person who is mostly evil, like ninety nine percent evil, but pretends well, to not be evil? Yeah, because like you said. Hopkins thinks he's doing it for the Lord, which is ridiculous. But like, at least he has some sort of conviction where as Stern is just out for blood and he's just, and and like I said, these two don't even get along particularly. I mean, they're, they're just, they're always in conflict with one another and trying to outwit each other and trying to jockey for position. It's, it's, it adds a whole other layer to this film. Yeah, but then again, does does Hopkins have any conviction? Because he immediately is like, like to Sarah, like you can come to my room later to talk about this. And when she gets there, he's just like, I could go easy on him if you just mm-hmm. like, at, like. So, well, does yeah, he have he's, any conviction, or is he is is he just pretending that he's a garden variety, ultra religious hypocrite? I mean, <laughs> but but he probably thinks even when he's sleeping with Sarah, he probably thinks he's doing the right thing and being all pious or, or can at least excuse it. Um, but <laughs> obviously it's, it's all wrong. And on that note, I, I, I actually think, um, I actually think Sarah's character in this is really strong too. She knows what she's doing and she figures she has to do it to help the people she loves. I, yeah, she is. She is. So it's kind of a little bit shocking at the end that the screaming 
because I, I, I mean, I was reading that like Michael Reeves or, or maybe the uh, somebody else on set was saying that that basically is ending with her going crazy. And if, yeah, that's, if that's that, that was my take as well. If yeah. that's the case, then everybody's gone crazy. Stern, when Stern dies, he gets his eyes stamped out. Oh God, that's horrible! And like the way the camera just cuts to him and he's just writhing on the ground like he's scurrying away. Yeah, and that was originally supposed to be way more brutal. And and there was a, it was it was written in a different way. I just read about that today because like the last shot. It also got a rewrite. So yeah, the finale was was obviously was very different. Um, Stern falls in with a group of gypsies in the original script and attempts to rape one of the women, and she fights him off by plunging her thumbs into his eyes. So you can see uh, how that kind of got morphed into the yeah. ending that that ended up in the shooting script. And then the gypsies would have staked him to death. That's a much more brutal ending. Yeah. And it, it makes oh more God. sense too. Yeah. But um, as it is, now I can't remember. I think I think I think um Marshall stamps his eyes out, right? Yeah, because that's when he breaks his bonds. Yeah, yeah. But man, I you know, I watched this twice in preparation for this, and I get really like worked up when I watch this movie. And then by the end, I'm just exhausted. I'm just part of it's um I feel relieved at, at, that some justice has been done, but not really because like everybody's lost their mind at the end. Hopkins is dead. Stern is dead. Uh, uh, Marshall's lost his mind. Sarah's probably losing it. Um, and then you, like I said, you wonder what happened to these people after this scene. Like, where did it go from there? Did, did, did he get in worse trouble because he was now deserting the army again? Did his friend end up killing him as it was originally scripted? You can go a lot of ways with it. I did not get the impression from the way that that ending is filmed that the friend is going to kill him. I do think he, I don't know, I could see it. I, I want, maybe I just want some brightness in this because this movie is so bleak. But yeah, my hope and the way I like to see the ending is that she isn't quite insane. She's having a breakdown because there's been this violence and committed against her and in front of her and it's horrific and she's screaming at it and he's going to calm down and maybe there's a chance that they'll live you know maybe there's a chance that once he leaves the army or or maybe he won't leave the army maybe but i don't know i have the feeling maybe i'm just an optimist here but it just feels <laughs> like his friends would cover for him right because he, he took his little right. detour on the mission but i mean their army they're they're in uh, Cromwell's army, right? So they're going after the king. That that's what yeah. that's what their mission is: is to go and like reconnaissance and basically track down the king. Yeah. And Hopkins is working for the king. Yeah. So I maybe there's a way that they they view it as like, I mean, it's not like his superiors are sympathetic to him. They they are sympathetic and want to support him in this. They're just like, we just need you for this in the army. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to feel the best for them, even though I don't want to think the best of, of Cromwell. Uh, I, <laughs> I do want to feel the best for these characters. Like they've, they've, they've suffered so much in this movie. I want to think that at the end, they, they will have some sort of quiet life that yeah. will of course be touched by this. There's no way they can live and not be haunted by these events. But 
like I have to imagine also the worst of it was her uncle dying and her being raped twice. Yeah. And that they got married after that. So they, they, they got through that part. I don't know. Which, which actually I'm glad you brought that up because my favorite scene in this is when he goes in is when Marshall comes back and, and greets Sarah and she's just, she's like losing it. This is in the middle of the film, I think. And um, the word witch is written in this house on the walls and, and he kind of, you know, calms her down and, and, and then they, they go to this altar and then he, I, I, my impression is he just marries her right there on the spot. I think it's a very sweet scene. And and this is when it kind of turns to, because it's like, this is when he vows revenge and he's like, I'm going to hunt these guys down and kill them. I, I think that's a very, very powerful scene. I don't know if you got the same feeling. No, I love it. And that's, that is the scene that forms the basis of me thinking like, maybe they can be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had the same feeling at the end of this movie. I, I was like, I, I hope everything worked out for these guys. <laughs> They've been through a lot. And, uh, and when she screams, I think it's such a great shot. I, I think it's just, this is emotional catharsis. Like, Oh my God, this is over. And then, um, and I had the same thought you did where it's like, I hope his buddy came in and shot Hopkins and it was just like, get the hell out of town. Like, just take her, go, just <laughs> get on your horse and, and just go and go. So but I, I, uh, it's always going to bug me. Like, I want to know what happened to these people. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, so before we go on anywhere, um, since this movie was written for Donald Pleasance, yeah, what do you think that movie would have been like? Because <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> if he wanted a quiet, subdued performance, Donald Pleasance is not the actor that I would go for. Like, I he would not be my first thought. Not not that Donald Pleasance was always over the top. Like he he could play quiet, but even his quiet had a little bit of outrageousness to it. <laughs> like I don't, yeah. the, the man was not really capable of being just a normal person. I think <laughs> and I love Donald Pleasance. I don't, I don't oh, mean me too. I, I don't mean that like as a mockery. I think he is a wonderful actor. I think he's great. I think he has quite a bit of range. I just would not look at him and think <laughs> he's going to be more subdued than Vincent Price. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Donald Pleasance too. Um, but, and I'm glad you brought that up because I guess the, when they originally scripted this, they wanted Hopkins to come off as inept. Now I can see Donald Pleasance playing inept. Oh, like, yeah. like I Definitely. think he would have looked a little more ridiculous. Uh, you know, as much as I love Donald Pleasance, um, I, I think I, I understand why they wanted him for the role because he would have come off as this just sort of schlubby, inept uh, guy who who was very pompous and thought more of himself. Whereas Vincent Price you get the you know you get the vibe from him that this guy is is deathly serious and and he has that gravitas not that pleasance doesn't have gravitas but it's a, it's in a different way um so i think that's why they wanted him is cuz they wanted that character to come off as inept as they put it so yeah i'm gl i'm actually glad price got the role oh i am too i am too yeah cuz he came off as more serious more menacing and they they said they did have to alter the script accordingly when when aip stipulated that the price be in the film um so I, I i kind of would love to see what that original script was like i think i from what i've read it's quite a bit different in a lot of ways 
but um, I would love to do a compare and contrast with this one. So this movie kind of like kicked off a wave of these type of uh, like Inquisition style satanic panic movies. Yeah. Evil set. Have you seen any of the others? Have you seen like one of the most notable ones is probably Mark of the Devil with Udo Kier. Uh, there's a lot of those on my watch list because I love this strain of horror. As I said before, um, like I, like I said, I, Blood on Satan's Claw is one of the very first horror movies I ever saw pieces of when I was a kid and was terrified by. Um, it's very much in the same vein as this, although I think this is a better film. But yeah, I, I haven't. I don't think I've seen many. Well, Mark of the Devil has a very young Udo Kier. That's on Tubi. And I, I just bring that up because I did watch those this last year in quarantine. Me and my buddy Rick, who who was on this episode, he did our, our Fibes episode. We we did a, a virtual watch of the Mark of the Devil movies, one and two. I much prefer Witchfinder General. Mm-hmm. Mark of the Devil is not quite my type of horror movie. This isn't really my type of horror movie. I do like The Wicker Man. I do like folk horror. I, mm-hmm. I didn't actually think of this as folk horror. I can see it now, but at the time, I, I kind of lumped it in with like Mark of the Devil. Like I, I, I considered them satanic panic Inquisition movies, I guess. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else that you want to say about Witchfinder General before we uh, head on to our final segment? Just real briefly, um, one of the best things about this movie for me is it's beautifully shot, I think. Um, by jo- I, I'm going to butcher this name, John Kokiyun, I believe, something like that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, C-O-Q-U-I-L-L-O-N. Um, I, I, the cinematography in this is, is, I think it's it's breathtaking. I don't know, did you have the same thought? Yeah, no, this movie looks great. I think, I think what I, I what kind of turned me off the first time I watched this movie was a sense of ugliness and despair in this movie. And yet sure, watching yeah. it now a few times, like, like having seen it a few times, I can see the, the craft that has gone into it, the, like the skill and the kind of beauty that is there. And with that score as well, what, what struck me in the, in the first viewing as kind of like mindless misery, just like a movie that was wallowing in miserableism almost. Really? I, I'm being I'm being I'm being hyperbolic right now, but that that's the type of uh, type of reaction I had. I had a, I had a negative reaction the first time I saw this because this isn't, as I said, this isn't really my style of horror movie, and it's not what I expected at all from Vincent Price. Yeah, that it wasn't until a second watch that I kind of like realized, you know, what was what was going on. But there is there is an intent behind it. it isn't it? Isn't just there to be gross and it isn't just there to be uh titillating or to make you feel bad it is you know there is a beauty to like the the pastoral english countryside and the music is really good yeah yeah um the the score by paul ferris yeah it's it's fantastic it it, both of these films have have really fantastic scores i think i probably preferred this one a little bit um but i guess uh um there's a scholar adam scovell who uh, had a really great term for this kind of film, pastoral violence. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, yeah. And, uh, like I said, that's that's something that I really gravitate towards in horror. I love these sort of woodsy uh, wilderness kind of horror films. A lot of folk horror is like that. I, I love that look and feel. I, I just I eat that stuff up. 
And also, this is weird, but like, do you get any like Princess Bride vibes from this? <laughs> Uh, well, I can tell you that no, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it could have been a possible influence because uh, I don't know something about the way the two leads interact is is similar, and the the, the way it's shot and um, outdoors, and and also um, Hopkins reminds me a bit of Count Rugen, Christopher Guest's character. They even have a similar look. Oh um, uh, yeah, yeah. And and knowing Christopher Guest. I can see him basing that on Hopkins in this film. I, I, I bet it would be something that he would do. I don't know. It's just a weird theory of mine. But um, I thought that was kind of interesting. Also, uh, really, the only other thing I want to mention is that the, the pacing of this, I think, is fantastic, too. It's a really lean movie. I didn't find anything boring in it. Uh, it moves nicely. Has a lot of, you know, the beats are there and... Like I said, there's we've been talking about the thematic implications of all this, and it really moves like a historical drama more than a horror film. But um, but yet it is horrific too. Um, and and like I said, it, it does have a tiny tiny bit of humor to kind of ha- let you release a little bit. I, I really thought this movie had just just like everything. Yeah. <laughs> it, a lot of it, you know, just. This is this is what I look for in horror. I, I like a lot of different things in horror, but but this is definitely a film that that really like hit me hard. Well, I'm glad that that I was uh, able to facilitate you watching this. Um, but that makes a an interesting question because if I were to just watch this movie, I, I would not consider this horror in really. Yeah, I could see that. Um, maybe not in the conventional sense. But um, I know it, it definitely gets lumped into that genre quite a bit, especially in the folk horror genre. Um, but yeah, it, it's that it's that weird balancing act between historical drama and, and horror. And I, I think that's part of what makes this movie so cool. There's just a lot of different things going on at once and um, a lot of implications about humanity and what we do to each other and what we do each to each other under the guise of religion and and then you get to the end of the movie and everybody's lost it it's just it's it's fascinating this is a this is a really great film i think yeah well i i uh, agree um i think you're a little bit higher on this movie which is fine than i am but i think this is a really good this is a really great movie is the bleakness about it what kind of doesn't sit well with you no no definitely not It, it is just that it's um i don't know I'm not. I'm not sure. Like I said, this isn't really what I go to horror movies for. Now, what 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 would be your like one one of your top tier horror films? Then like that would be different from from this sort of. I like all types because I I mean I can go for a good splatter fest. Like I love. I, mean, I can go for you know Evil Dead or Reanimator or Return of the Living Dead. I think the stuff that I really really respond to is the kind of like. Um, and this movie does have it, so actually maybe it is what I like. The dread, like or or kind of like a haunting atmosphere. I find haunting to be far superior to scary, <laughs> you know, like Oh yeah. yeah. I, I like I like a good um I like a good ghost story. I like things like the original haunting or the innocence or even newer like like innkeepers, changeling, the shining. Like I like that type of ghost oh. story where it's like yeah, I love all those. Yeah. <laughs> or even like 
like one I've discussed on this, which is Lake Mungo, which has a mystery to it and is very emotionally like that movie kind of like kind of wrecked me the first time I watched it. I, I almost started sobbing the first time I saw it. Like I, I like that, that sort of thing. And I'm fine with extreme stuff. Like I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like the other ones I, I mentioned, but um, they're not the movies. Like I, I don't hear the descriptions and go, Oh, I need to watch that. <laughs> and yet th- this movie is, I think great. I, I, I'm not sure. It's not like like there's nothing. Or it's not like there's something holding me back. I do really enjoy it. I, I do just think that, like, li- from listening to you, you you have probably embraced this movie more readily than I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I loved it right off the bat, and and I was very happy to watch it again, and 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 it was just as moving the second time as it, I saw it. So yeah, but but all those movies you mentioned, I love too. I mean, The, the Shining is my my second favorite horror film and I really liked the innkeepers. I love the changeling. Um, um, would you mention the haunting too? Uh, yeah. The innocence. Yeah. Yeah. The innocence. Um, I think, I think I liked the innocence. More. Yeah. I liked the innocence more than the haunting, but, but yeah, I love, I love that strain of horror as well. So, um, yeah, I, I get it. Like, so, so you would say this is maybe a little bit more on the exploitive end, slightly. Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't find this movie exploitative at all. Um, oh, okay. I could okay. see it get lumped into that, and I know, I know people called it exploitative, but I don't, I don't think it is because it's not like, um, well, like Mark of the Devil, Mark of the Devil, which which came after this, or or even well, one I was going to talk about later. Cry of the Banshee, a Vincent Price movie from a couple years later, which treads similar ground. I find that uh, to be exploitative. That ha- has a lot more nudity and a lot more violence, like whippings and stuff. And it is, I think, meant to be titillating. You are supposed to be kind of like, oh, look at those like naked women <laughs> at, at, at a certain point. And you're not supposed to feel that about any of this. This movie is not trying to exploit the nudity. Like, it, it I don't know. It, it maybe this maybe I'm wrong about this, but it it is in there to serve what he's trying to say with the story. So I don't find that exploitative at all. Yeah, and and that's why I, I was really kind of bothered by the initial criticism that this movie received because all these critics were just piling on this movie, and I, I think it was really unfair. Uh, but but again, you look at it through the prism of of that time period, and maybe they just thought it was too extreme, but. Yeah, I mean, I think about 1968, and I mean, especially if you look around the other movies that Vincent Price is making, or like in America, it's called The Conqueror Worm and marketed as if it's one of the <laughs> uh, Poe pictures, and yeah. it, it isn't what anybody, I think, was expecting from him. <laughs> and and The Witchfinder General is so much uh, of a better title for yeah. this. I think yeah. The Conqueror Worm is just... Uh... All right, so I think that's going to do it for us for this one we're going to take a quick break we're going to come back with our final segment and uh, say our goodbyes okay we're back we got just a couple more minutes with you today and i know sir hatch porch has a couple of other movies i think we all have a couple of movies just to mention uh, some kind of side viewing to go along with this. Some other recommended movies, if you like either of what we're talking about today. Uh, you're the guest. I'll let you go first. I usually go first, but you can go ahead. What do you have that you uh, you want to recommend? 
so if if you like the haunted palace uh and you're interested in charles beaumont the screenwriter that i mentioned uh i'm just gonna recommend a couple of my favorite twilight zone episodes because i think the guy was was a genius um season one uh perchance to dream one of my absolute favorite twilight zone episodes very surreal and a definite precursor in my mind to carnival of souls which came out a couple years later that's a fantastic episode long live walter jameson from also from season one kevin mccarthy's in it so you know that's gonna be fun yeah um and it's a oddly similar story to how charles beaumont himself died because he he uh, aged prematurely um, that's a that's a fascinating story. Um, I would recommend anybody looking up Charles Beaumont's uh, The End of His Life, What Happened. So that's a great episode. The Howling Man in season two is one of the f- only straight up horror uh, episodes that the Twilight Zone did. And also um, my all time favorite Twilight Zone episode in season four. It's called Miniature. It's one of the uh, hour-long episodes that they did. Not very widely seen because it wasn't syndicated for years, but it's my personal favorite episode. Robert Duvall's in it, and he um, he falls in love. Well, well, he becomes fascinated by this doll in a dollhouse inside this museum. And uh, it's not a, an episode with a big moral at the end or anything. It's more fantasy um, but I just find it really touching and, and moving and, and uh, definitely, definitely my favorite, uh, not only my favorite Charles Beaumont episode, but my favorite Twilight Zone episode overall. Oh. Nice. I want to say, uh, I don't know if you have any more Charles Beaumont. Uh, no, that, that's that's the only four I chose. Well, I, I want to say if you're looking for more Charles Beaumont, uh, he wrote another movie I absolutely love um, called Night of the Eagle. Uh, it's oh. also also called, uh, I believe, I think in America, Burn Witch Burn from 1962. Oh, I have heard of that. Yeah. It's so good. It, it's great. It, it fits right in with something like um, Night of the Demon. I mean, oh, okay. I think yeah. I think maybe maybe the title keys into that a bit where it, the way it, it treats um, the occult and uh, witchcraft is so it's so cool to me. I love the way it is. It's basically a, a her, this guy is a college professor and he's kind of being beset, like cursed by a, a witch, but he doesn't believe in any of that. And it turns out his wife is a witch and has been protecting him for years. And he's like, he, he finds out about it and is like really mad. And so he, ha- he makes her throw it all away. Cause it's super, it's just like stupid superstition, superstition. Oh, that sounds great because I, I, like I said, I'm mostly familiar with Beaumont's TV work. Um, so, but but I'm dying to see uh, the movies he worked on. So uh, that sounds great. I'm, I'm definitely putting that on my watch list. He worked on it with Richard Matheson, by the way. Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> this sounds so good. <laughs> it's great. I I I love it. Uh, I I really do like this movie. That sounds fantastic. Um. So I, I have like just two Lovecraft recommendations. One we've already talked about, Reanimator. I mean, hopefully everybody that is listening to this has seen Reanimator. <laughs> uh, 
and it sounds like you love it about as much as I do, right? It's so it's terrific. It's really good. Yeah, and a, a great balancing act of a lot of different things. Uh, and then the other one is one I just recently saw. It's a horror anthology called Necronomicon from 1993. Oh, yeah, I haven't watched that. Is that is Stuart Gordon have anything to do with that? Uh, well, uh, Brian Usna directed one of the segments. Okay, that makes sense. I just looked it up, and the person, the people that are, I have to see this movie, I have to see this movie. So it's, <laughs> it's Brian Usna, uh, mm-hmm. Shusuke Kaneko, who did the um, the uh, the Heisei um, Gamera films. Oh, you're kidding! I didn't even know that. <laughs> Oh my god. <laughs> and the third person is Christoph Gans, who did Brotherhood of the Wolf and Silent Hill. Oh wow. And and Crying Freeman in the nineties. Oh, he like that's three directors that I really dig. I've gotta go on. I I have to watch this. I can't believe I haven't seen it yet. Well, and there's even more selling points for this because you've got Jeffrey Combs playing Lovecraft. I didn't even know it was him. Oh, really? When I was I was watching this film. They they put makeup effects on him and they kind of elongated his jaw because H.P. Lovecraft had that weird jaw. Um, I didn't even know it was Jeffrey Combs. Oh, wow. And I got to the end. I'm like, you're kidding me. And then the makeup and animatronics effects are by Tom Savini, um, John Carl. Is it Beekler or oh, Buechler? I think. Yeah. Uh, uh, Christopher wow. Nelson and screaming mad george oh my god <laughs> i know <laughs> it's it's a fun movie again some segments are better than others i thought the last one was was great um but it's got a mood to it and a look and uh, jeffrey combs is good it, it's it's a lot of fun i'm gonna tell myself it's a bad movie uh just to to temper my expectations because i'm not expect i'm not expecting it to be like yeah but yeah, holy cow! That, that I can't believe I've never seen this. Yeah, I wish I had like a really good obscure Lovecraft adaptation to reference, but I mean, all I can think of are the ones everybody knows about. Like Dagon is really fucking great, mm-hmm. uh, and yeah, anything that Stuart Gordon or Brian Usna did is pretty worthwhile. I think. Yeah, for sure. So I, I also have a, a couple of folk horror films I want to recommend if that's all right. Oh yeah, go for it. Um. One would be uh, Crowhaven Farm, of course, the TV movie from 1970, um, uh, directed by Walter Grauman. That's a good one. I just watched that recently because of uh, Creature Features. Yeah, it's actually been on there a couple times, I think. Again, another huge Twilight Zone connection. It's directed by Walter Grauman and written by John McGreevy. So it kind of does feel like a Twilight Zone episode, although I think uh, Aaron Spelling was the producer, so it does have a little bit of that um, soap opera kind of feel. But uh, if you like folk horror and witches, it's really good. And, and Hope Lang is in it. I think she's really good in it, too. Uh, Blood on Satan's Claw. I've talked about that to death. I, I talked about even last time I was on, I talked about that movie. Uh, Burned at the Stake from 1981, which is a Burt I. Gordon movie. So... You know it's going to be a little wonky, but uh, I really eat this stuff up, this kind of folk horror stuff. And and I thought for for especially for a Bird Eye Gordon film, that was that was really kind of compelling. 
again, flawed, but um, there's a lot I really liked about it. And of course, um, The Witch from 2015, directed by Robert Eggers, which again, I imagine everybody has seen by now. So those are really good witch-themed films. Another one, Let's Scare Jessica to Death. Again, another one I've talked about before. <laughs> Have you seen that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I've, I, it's been a long time, but I, I, okay. I saw it. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of that one. Uh, Mephisto Waltz from 1971. Really interesting movie about Satanism and witches. Um, uh, of course, Season of the Witch by George Romero. Uh, 1972, which is not really like these aren't really folk horror, (laughs) but they are witch films. Season of the Witch is in like a whole different uh, universe than I think a lot of these other movies, the way it's done. Um, I really love it, but it is different. It's it's a different kind of horror film. Um, And then uh, if you're really looking for something that's just bizarre and not and for something that's not necessarily good, but a lot of fun. Um, the possessed also known as demon, Witch child from 1975. It's a Spanish film directed by Amando de Osorio. Um, and it is just insane. <laughs> and, and of course, abominable Dr. Fibes, I, I think, I think that's still my favorite Vincent Price film. But but Witchfinder General runs really really close. I do think Witchfinder General is probably his best performance. But but Fives is going to be hard to dethrone for me. Yeah, it's such a cool movie. It's just such a cool cool movie. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, I think that's that's going to have to do it for us this week. Do you have anything going on? Anything you want to tell people about or? Everybody should join the uh, Cinemadness movie <laughs> Twitter threads every other Friday. Uh, those are still a lot of fun. Yeah, the next one is the 28th, I think. I don't know what it is. It's something with vinegar syndrome. Yeah. But 8.30 Pacific, check out Twitter, hashtag CineMadnessMovie. You can, you can follow along with, uh, with us and with a bunch of other people. It's always a fun time. Yeah, so everybody check out that, and hopefully we'll, we'll find out what's going on soon. Uh, as for me, you can follow me um, and the show at Twitter and Instagram at TwoHeadedPod. If you have any questions or want to drop me a line, I also have an email, uh, TwoHeadedPod at gmail.com. And of course, there's the Facebook page. So thank you once again for listening. Uh, if you're enjoying, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. That stuff does help. Anyway, thanks for joining us for another week. We'll see you next week for another incredible Two-Headed Podcast. Two-Headed Podcast.